like Joyce said, turn to page 964 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have one of those or you're at uh, home watching online, uh, we uh, invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to go verses 5 through 15. We're looking this morning at the Lord's Prayer uh, out of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And uh, the people online are always on our mind, but they're especially on, uh, on my mind this past week because I was in a coffee shop and uh, Fred and Kathy C Crabtree's uh, grandson stopped me in the line and said, hey, I watch you every week with my grandparents, just wanted to say hey. And then he said, I'll see you on Sunday, but you won't see me. So big shout out. Thank you for saying hey. Um, and just as a reminder for everybody in the room, you know, there are friends and faces that we really miss and can't wait to see back. Uh, with that in mind, we're looking at Matthew chapter 6 this morning, verses 5 through 15. Friend, hear the word of the Lord to us uh, from the words of Jesus. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open as we pray? Uh, Father, we thank you that you sent your son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the curse of the law. Uh, Father, we thank you that when you sent your son, he taught us how to pray. And Father, I thank you that you know that prayer does not come naturally or easily for us. And so, Father, I thank you that your son taught us how to pray. And Father, would our lives this week be different because of it? And Lord, would each one of us commune with you in a real way this week? Uh, Lord Jesus, have mercy. Uh, Lord, teach us not just how to pray, but teach us to pray. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Uh, well, you know, it's one of those moments in life that is sort of seared into your memory. You know, have you ever those like really visceral experiences in life or interactions with a friend that's just sort of seared into your memory? One of those experiences you're just never going to forget. Uh, well, one of those happened to me about uh, uh, 10 or 11 years ago, and a friend came to me, and he had ruined his family and ruined his marriage, and his life was in utter shambles. He had been hiding all kinds of things in his life, and I remember sitting in his living room uh, late one night, listening to him talk, and I remember him saying, I, I keep thinking there is some other way for me to be close to people and honest with what I'm struggling with that doesn't include actually letting people know who I am. I keep thinking there's some other way to have accountability and friendship that doesn't require me to actually open up to people with who I really am. <laughs> 
And of course, his point in that moment was, I'm never going to have accountability or friendship or deep connection with people or root out this sin in my life unless I actually take the mask off. Isn't there some other way that I can address this problem in my life and still keep the facade up? And of course, when everything, you know, proverbially hit the fan, it all became utterly apparent to him that, no, there is really no way. There is no other way. Right? It's going to have to require opening up to a group of people, hopefully, that are believers that walk with you through these kind of things. And so I, I think what sticks out to me about that story is I think his question, right? Isn't there some other way? And uh, as we think about lighting the way for people and for ourselves back to the Father this Christmas season, you know, I think when we think about bringing people back to the Father, or you need to come back to the Father, you may be thinking, like my friend, isn't there like some other way that I can sort of like connect with God or come back to Christ that doesn't require me <laughs> to be honest with who I am before the Lord, that doesn't require me to do certain things that I don't want to do? Well, what I want to suggest to you is, as painful as it may be to sort of take the facade off and let people know who you are, uh, it may be just as painful to come back to the Father or so you may think, but actually, uh, one of the easiest ways to reconnect with God, even if you spent, you know, uh, several months in a far country, or maybe even several years in a far country, one of the easiest paths, one of the easiest ways that you can start moving back towards God is right there in your lap in front of you, and it's the Lord's Prayer. And uh, we're encouraging you, uh, we don't just, you know, encourage you for no reason. We encourage you to bring your friends and family uh, to watch online with you or come on Christmas Eve. You know, we want to help people come back to God. We want them to be reconciled to God. And people want to know God. Uh, you know, you know, it's funny is we get this impression that people don't believe in God anymore. You know, actually, like, maybe if you're around a certain group of people, that could be true. But statistically, you're dead wrong. Religious people are only on the incline People who don't believe in God, they're actually on the decline because they have a terrible tendency to not reproduce. And religious people, God bless them, they reproduce a lot. <laughs> and they tend to produce religious people. So religiosity, you know, religion's on the way up. It's actually not on the way down. So with that, you know, we're going to be interacting with people who on some level want to connect with God, but they're wondering, isn't there like some other way that doesn't require me to like submit to Jesus and learn his way? Well, we don't need to browbeat anybody, but I think what we can do is we can invite them, especially during this season, to start praying the Lord's Prayer again. And that would be a really easy thing for you to do if you have a friend or a family member who's struggling or they don't know where they are in their faith or in, their, in some stage of deconstructing their faith. And you say, well, hey, how about we start praying the Lord's Prayer? You know, the problem for many of us is, you know, uh, raise your hand, if you would, if you learned the Lord's Prayer while you were a kid. Who, who learned the Lord's Prayer as a kid? great. That's great, right? Okay, I'm waiting for Janet to be like, yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting for our children's director for uh, 30 years to tell us yes. I think that's great too, and I learned it, but what's the danger of learning something as a child? Yeah, you think it's childish, right? You think it's pat, and so we can relegate something like the Lord's Prayer to a childish prayer, right, or something that I did when I was five, not something that's going to carry me through when I'm 45. Well, uh, Let's go through the Lord's Prayer this morning. Let's see if you think it's actually deep waters. Uh, you know, uh, Pope Gregory, writing in the 300s, you know, he compared Scripture uh, to an ocean, and he said it is deep enough for an elephant to swim in, 
but shallow enough for the lamb to go waiting. And I love that image of scripture, right, uh, that Gregory talks about, right? The Lord's prayer is shallow enough for your kids to pray with you every night, but it's deep enough for it to carry you through the rest of your lives, right? And what I'm suggesting to you is this is one of those easy ways for you to start wake, working your way back to the Father if you've been away from him for a while. All right, so let's dive into the Lord's Prayer. Look at verse 5. So if you remember, uh, we're in the Gospel of Matthew right now for Advent. Uh, we're looking at various passages. In verse 5, you know, Jesus uh, starts a different teaching. You know, he's sort of hitting all these various topics about what life in the kingdom is going to be like. Jesus is the king of the kingdom, and he's saying, this is my alternative group of people who will reign forever with me in a new heavens and a new earth. And this is the way that we operate. We're different than the world around us. And so right there in verse 5, he starts to show us, how are we different? He says, well, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners that they may be seen by others, right? So who, who among us doesn't know somebody who uses their religiosity as a source of pride or arrogance or to look down on people? Well, Jesus, you know, categorically denounces that. He says, don't use your prayer or your religious life as some sort of way to look down on other people, right? Rather than a pedestal, you're really supposed to be doing this on your knees, Right? And so Jesus says, instead of that, that's the world's way. You know, we use things for sources of pride or for arrogance. He says, let me give you this alternative way of life. He says, truly, I say to you that those kind of people, they've received their reward, right? Okay, you, you built up your religiosity for your pride. Okay, very good. You've got your reward. Now, verse 6, he's going to give you the alternative. You know, here's what not to do. Here's what to do. What to do in verse 6 is what? But when you pray... Notice that Jesus expects us to pray. He doesn't say, I really want you to pray. He says, but when you pray, but when you pray, go where? Go into your room and do what? Shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. So rather than sort of, you know, loudly blasting your religiosity and being like, you know, dear God, thank you I'm not like these other knuckleheads around me, you know, as Jesus says that in one of his other parables in Luke. Instead, what Jesus envisions for the Christian life is sort of this one-on-one -on -one private time of prayer, right? He says, go alone in secret. Don't talk to people about it, you know, and your father will meet with you one-on-one. -on -one. And he even goes so far as to give you sort of practical bits of advice, right? He says, go to your room and shut the door, right? And pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And what I love so much about verse 6, if you notice, is Jesus promises a blessing for people who do this. You know, why should you do this? Is it because I'm telling you to? Well, yeah, you should listen to me right now because I'm speaking on behalf of Jesus. But on a deeper level, you should do this because Jesus promises you that he will reward you. Your life will be different. I can absolutely, on behalf of God, tell you that your life will be different if you do this. Not because I can say that, but because Jesus tells you, you will be rewarded if you meet with God in prayer. Isn't that beautiful? And then he goes on in verse 7, he says, and when, and when you pray like this, when you're alone with your father, and, uh, you know, okay, just press pause for a second. I know sometimes people are different, right? Aren't people weird, you know? I meet a lot of people. People are really fun. They make life interesting, Right? That's how you should think about your in-laws, right? They make life interesting, right? You know, as all your family comes back in for Christmas, that's how you see life, right? They make it interesting. So when we look at this prayer and he's depicting going into our room, you know, uh, 
sometimes I think we get tripped up in the mechanics of prayer because we don't want things to be ritual. Uh, And so the irony is sometimes to keep things from being ritualized, what do we do? We just create more ritual. (laughs) You know, we are people of habit. Uh, You know, so like for, you know, the Bible never says you need to make the sign of the cross. Sometimes you'll notice me that I make the sign of the cross. You know, maybe that weirds you out. But then again, you know, it weirds me out praying like this. When I was a kid, this made me really strange. But who among us didn't teach our kids to do what? How do you pray? How do you teach a kid to pray? You do what? You bow your head and you do what? And you put your hands together, close your eyes. Well, that's a great posture of prayer that we do see in the Bible. What's the problem if you only pray like this? Is this how Jesus always prayed? How does Jesus pray other times? Other times it'll say, looking up to heaven, Jesus lifted up his eyes and he prayed and said, Father, thank you for this. You know, so there are certain rituals that we can do, but I think sometimes in our desire to avoid a ritual like making the sign of the cross or folding our hands in prayer, we actually make new rituals. But what I'm suggesting to you is you can use a wealth of things to help your prayer life. So I know when I first became a Christian, I watched a uh, documentary about Martin Luther, and it was amazing. Anyone ever seen the, the Lutheran movie, the Lutheran Church's documentary? It's got Ralph Fiennes in it. And in that documentary, or it's, just, it's a movie, I guess. It's not a documentary. It's kind of like a documentary. But in that, they depict Martin Luther praying. And as he prays every day, you know what his posture of prayer is? He literally lies prostrate on the ground. And he really did that. And you know what that means? That means he laid on his belly and he put his body out into the sign of the cross. And that's how he prayed to the Lord. You know, anybody else, you know, feel weird sometimes when we sing, like we come down and we bow down before you and you look around and nobody's bowing down in the room and you think, oh, I guess that's like metaphorical or something. Well, what I'm suggesting to you is there are times in your prayer life where it may be appropriate to bow your head, but you can also look up into heaven. You know, you may actually be blessed to lay down prostrate on the ground. And there may be other times, but what's another totally appropriate posture that you can take in prayer? Anyone, anyone think of some? You can be kneeling. You know, why do we kneel? Why do we take postures? Well, it's not for the sake of ritual, but sometimes your posture matters, right? I mean, isn't this what we instill into our friends and our family? You know, you want to sit up straight, right? If you're in a job interview, are you supposed to slouch? Well, if you're in the presence of a holy God and you are trying to commune with him in secret, well, who cares if you think you look silly? Nobody can see what you look like. Maybe you need to bow. Maybe you need kneeling on your knees. It's a totally appropriate way of engaging it. Regardless of what it is, I guess what I'm saying is I I want you to think of your prayer life uh, more like a feast in front of you as opposed to just this one thing you have to do every single time. There's actually a feast in front of you. And sometimes kneel. Maybe sometimes lie prostrate in the dust. Sometimes look up. Sometimes look down. Jesus goes on in verse 7. He says, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Now, the irony about this verse is sometimes we read that and we think, wait a second, I'm not supposed to repeat repetitive prayers because Jesus says don't heap up empty phrases. Well, let's ask that question. Is Jesus actually telling you not to be repetitive in your prayers? Well, I think the answer right there lies when he says, for, here's the reason. Look at verse 7. He says, for... They think they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So what this reveals, I think for so many of us, is when we come to prayer, 
And this will probably take you the rest of your life to figure out. When we come to prayer, we come to our Father. And this is especially hard for us who had maybe bad fathers or abusive fathers or you lack a father. And so we may think of fathers the only, he's the stern guy or he's the guy who is absent. Um, well, if you can, don't project that kind of fatherhood onto God. Think of the perfect father who protects you and loves you and wants a relationship with you and exhorts you to be the best that you can be. That's what it means to go to your father. And that's why it's going to take you the rest of your life to grow into that, is to learn to be a child of God. And so when you go to him, you're going to a father. You know, I loved, I think I mentioned it last week, you know, Tim Keller said this better than anybody. And he said, uh, who, who would wake up a king in the middle of the night to ask for a glass of water? He said, only a child. And that's the kind of access we have to God, our father. Yes, he's the king. Yes, he's holy. But he's also your father. And if that seems like a stretch, he's a holy God, but yet he's also your father. Well, friends, that's the beauty of faith is learning more and more what that actually means and to appropriate it for yourself. He's my father. He already knows what I need. So I don't need to pray out of desperation like he's not listening to me. And I don't need to sort of just repeat the same words over and over again, thinking that I've got to get him to listen to me. You see, what Jesus is comparing people to here, he's not saying it's wrong to repeat the Lord's Prayer. In fact, he gives us the Lord's Prayer to pray. And he teaches us a parable of a persistent widow who constantly goes back to a judge. He says, that's the kind of persistence we need to have in prayer. Instead, what he's correcting is how people who don't know God pray. Notice who he says, don't pray like. He says, don't pray like the Gentiles. And who are Gentiles? Well, in Jesus' life, they were people from every other ethnic group who didn't know who the true God was. And if you go back to sort of like the Roman gods or the Greek gods or the regional gods of Samaria and all that area, you know, they don't have morally upstanding gods. They don't have like people uh, that they worship that are gods that have high moral character. And there's no guarantee that any of their gods care about them. And so in the Gentile world, what you would have to do is you'd have to argue and plead and beg for your God to listen to you. You remember Elijah and the prophets in the Old Testament? You remember the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal, that famous story? You know, do you remember that story? How long are the prophets of Baal asking Baal to come down and light the fire? They're all day. You know what they're doing? They're cutting themselves, you know. And they're saying, oh, Baal, please listen to us, listen to us. And then Elijah comes along and he says, you remember what Elijah says in this story? It's hilarious. He says, oh, maybe Baal's using the bathroom. You know, yell a little bit louder. Maybe he'll hear you. You know, maybe he's, maybe he's taking a number two. Go for it. See what happens. You know, when people tell me the Bible's boring, I'm just like, well, that's like, you know, that's classic, right? You know, you never read it, right? If you've never read it, yeah, I guess it's boring. But if you read it, you're kind of like, hmm, that's interesting. Elijah's poking fun of Baal. Well, the point, of course, then is Elijah just prays, God, light the fire, and he does. So I think what Jesus is telling us to do is to say, when you go to your father, when you pray, are you praying out of utter desperation? Are you praying like somebody who doesn't know that God is their father? Are you praying like someone who feels utterly orphaned and all alone, and you've got to make it happen, and you've got to plead, beg, and steal from anybody who will listen? Don't pray like that. Don't pray out of that kind of desperation. Instead, Pray to your Father, 
who already knows what you need, and he will hear you. Pray like that. And be persistent in that kind of prayer, but you don't have to plead and beg for your father to feed you. If your father's, you know, a good person, you have to be like, Dad, would you please feed me tonight? A good dad will do what? He'll be like, yeah, we're going to In-N-Out. Hop in the truck, of course. Maybe to close up on this thought, as you look at verse 7 and 8, you know what Jesus is getting at is, do you actually know God as your father? Do you really know him like that? Because that's the kind of access that we can have by faith. And then verse 9, Jesus gives us this wonderful prayer, right? The famous, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, you know, it's famously been said by a lot of commentators, though, that although Jesus doesn't call this the Lord's Prayer, uh, we should probably call it more something like the Disciples' Prayer, because he's teaching us as disciples what it means to pray. And the Lord's Prayer is probably more like the high priestly prayer in John 17. Uh, but regardless, we call it the Lord's Prayer. And notice how it begins. Where does it begin? What does he most want you to be thinking about when you kneel in your private room? What's the first thing that should come out of your mouth? Our Father, right? It'll take you the rest of your life to realize that God is your Father. And of course, this is more of an outline to a prayer than necessarily a prayer to just be said rotely. Sometimes we say it and we go through it fast and we're like, well, I didn't mean any of that. Well, when we go through the Lord's Prayer, think of it as an outline. So when you say, our Father, take a moment and try to reconcile. Wait a second, I don't feel like you're my Father. I'm terrified of you or I'm struggling with this. Uh, you know, the way that you, we think about this is we begin to pause as we work through the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father in heaven, you know, he's, he's high above, he's hallowed, right? That just means word, he's holy, he's set apart. Uh, we ask that his kingdom would come, his will be done, right? And as we go through these prayers, what I would suggest to you is, um, you know, I could spend three months talking about the Lord's Prayer. So let me just point out a couple of things that I think maybe you, you haven't quite focused on, or, or maybe this would be beneficial to you. Uh, the first thing is you look at the Lord's Prayer, um, and this is going to be a real challenge for you and me. Uh, especially living in sort of, you know, America in 2021. Uh, and do you notice what the, the pronouns are in the Lord's Prayer? Notice how they are always plural. And I'm, I'm not giving you a grammatic lesson right now, but I do want you to focus on that. Notice that it is our Father. It's not my Father. And then it's hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 11, what does it say next? Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, remember, Jesus is talking about praying in the context of your private prayer room or your closet or your bedroom when you're all alone. And when he says, when you are all alone, this is how you are to pray. It's not just for yourself. It's not just for yourself. It's actually for all of God's people. So, you know, if you think back to uh, the story of Job, remember when we did Job? Uh, I think uh, Scott preached on Job this summer. If you remember in the story of Job, Job, uh, you know, is a righteous man. He makes sacrifices for himself, and he's so righteous that he even sacrifices for whom? Anybody know? He makes sacrifices for his kids in case they've screwed things up. He says, God, forgive me, and you know what? Forgive my sons, because they can be knuckleheads sometimes. 
There's this beautiful picture of a righteous man that in his prayer life, he's not just thinking about himself, he's thinking about his whole family. Well, regularly when I pray this prayer, I pray for our church. I think of myself, I think of my family, and then I think about you. And I say, God, forgive us all the ways that I have sinned, all the ways that I have messed up, and forgive Jacksonville Presbyterian for what we've done. And forgive your church for the times that we have failed. Uh, There is no isolated walk with Jesus where it's just me and Jesus. It's Jesus and his bride, the church. And as much as I may sometimes want to disaffiliate from people who claim the name of Christ, I can't because they're my family. And you can't renounce your family, now can you? That's what makes them your family (laughs) because you can't get out of it. Notice then, this is the way I think that your prayer life will really be shaped differently. If you actually start tomorrow morning praying the Lord's Prayer, uh, you can't leave the Lord's Prayer and mean it and just apply it to your life. You've got to be praying on behalf of your family and of your church and of the whole church, right? Big C church. And not only are we asking, you know, to remind ourselves that we're all the children of the Father, but notice in verse 11, what are we supposed to pray for? Give us this day our daily bread. You know, I mean, you know, anybody really worried about what you're going to eat today for lunch? Anybody really worried? Probably not. Uh, There may be some people who are, but probably not. But when we pray this prayer, we have to remind ourselves that there are whole people, you know, whole people groups, uh, groups of children in downtown Medford, you know, homeless children or the homeless in our community who don't know where they're going to get their next meal. And how easy it is to harden our hearts when we see somebody asking for food or for a handout. And yet in Jesus's mind, when we go to God alone in prayer, we're we're supposed to be the kind of people who say, give us our daily bread. Give us what we need, right? And that should do all kinds of things in our life, right? It should spark us to be more compassionate towards the poor. Maybe it motivates you to give towards the poor, give to a charity that addresses the basic needs of humanity. But do you really think you can pray, give us our day, this daily bread, and not have some kind of heart for the poor? I mean, think about what James says. Anybody read the book of James? And James, he goes on and he says, well, it's great that you say that you have faith, but what good is it if you tell your brother, be fed and warmly clothed, but you don't give him the food that he needs or the clothes that he needs? Will that kind of faith do anything? Can there be faith apart from works? Can there be a fire apart from smoke? Those things go together. And uh, interestingly, um, you know, it's... It, this is one of those beautiful ways that I think our testimony shines the most brightly is when people who have walked away from God or the church or have never known the church see the church doing things that connect with the poor. Remember, it's going sort of, it's transcending your socioeconomic status, right? It's going outside of the realms of normalcy to engage a group of people that you have no other reason for doing it other than the gospel compels you, right? Give us our daily bread. You know, verse 13, you know, this is a meaningful prayer for me. Um, You know, I remember reading years ago uh, from the uh, Surgeon General uh, of America talking about sugar. And uh, he was writing, or he was interviewed in an article. And it was great. It was a great interview. And uh, his point was, he said, look, I quit smoking cold turkey. 
He was like, I was able to stop smoking. He says, you know, and I, it was like a sheer act of willpower because I knew it was bad for me. And he said, but how come in front of a box of Oreos, I can't control myself? <laughs> like I can kick smoking, that's easy. Oreos, oh my goodness gracious, not so easy, right? And I think, you know, this starts to show us, right, in the face of temptation, we're not good. Right? That's why we pray, lead us not into temptation. Yes, it's great to have willpower, and yes, it's great for us to have high moral character, but sometimes the greatest prayer is what? Just don't even lead me down the path. Don't even put it in front of me. Right? If I could say no, it wouldn't be a temptation, now would it? That's the whole point of a temptation is you're not good in front of it, you know? That's the point, right? Is, and so Jesus' response is that when we pray, we ask, Lord, just hedge me in. Don't let me go down the path. This is exactly the kind of wisdom that you and I see in the book of Proverbs in chapter 5, where Solomon's giving advice to his son, and he says, don't go to the woman's sin. Don't go down her street. You know where she lives, so just avoid the street. And you may think, well, that sounds really archaic. And that sounds old school. Well, it may be old school. Maybe it's a Neanderthal giving you advice. But generally, I, I tend to think that the best way to avoid, you know, eating Oreos is just not to buy them. Right? Right? You just don't put them on your coffee table. Right? You know, I, I mention this uh, sometimes. You'll probably think I'm really weird for just a second. Well, it's probably too late for that. You probably, if you've been here long enough, you'll know it's strange. But, um, you know... Um, I've, I've got this shtick. I've got this shtick, okay? And my shtick is there are things in my life that I don't like. And yeah, I guess I should use some sort of act of willpower, but everything that I've read, you know, from sociologists to theologians to news articles is that there are certain things in your life that you can't control. And one of those things, you know what it is? What's the thing that you can't control? It's in your pocket. Or you've probably, it's probably in your hands. You've probably looked at it five times since I've started talking right? It's your cell phone. It's, it's designed by some of the smartest people in our world to be constantly distracting, right? And it's a source of anxiety. I mean, the Senate just had a hearing about the emotional effects of our cell phones on young girls. And so, you know, what I found, anybody, uh, anybody ever, you probably don't do this for good reason, but you know, on certain phones, you can swipe over to one side, you can see how many hours a day you spend on your phone. Anybody ever looked at that number? You know what it is? You know what the average is? Worse than you think, right? It's worse than you think. And so I guess, the, so I was like, well, I don't want to be controlled by my phone. I don't want to keep looking at it. Well, I guess I could do some things. I guess I could get some willpower. But instead, you know what I did last month? I just got rid of it. Just got rid of my smartphone. I got rid of my iPhone and I got a dumb phone. And it doesn't do anything. It does nothing. It's like phone, text, and a map. And I love it. You know, it's ironic because when I was, I, I flashed back to when I was 18. That was 18 years ago. When I was 18, all I wanted, all I wanted was a phone and a car, <laughs> right? And now 18 years later, I have sold my car and now I have a dumb phone, right? And that's what I want. So all that, I, I share that one because I invite you to join me in consciously decoupling from your smartphone. And I invite you into that and join me with that. Your kids will thank you in 10 years because they will save so much money in therapy, right? All I ever saw my parents do is this, right? <laughs> save them the therapy bill. Spend some time with them. Join me in the dumb phone. But of course, that's just my application of this.
the broader principle is, yes, there may just be things that we have to take out of our lives, right? Lead me not into temptation. If I am going to go down that road, Lord, just put a barricade in front of it. Or maybe I just need to put a barricade in front of it so I don't go down the road of temptation. You know, lastly, uh, Jesus ends the prayer here. He says, deliver us from evil. And, you know, you know, commentators, you know, they go back and forth. Does he say evil or does he say the evil one, meaning Satan? Are we supposed to be delivered from evil generally or Satan specifically? Well, it's both and, right? And there's this idea that we have to remind ourselves daily that we are in spiritual warfare. You know, maybe that also weirds you out, but that's part of our Christian worldview that has been shared by Christians of all kinds for thousands of years, that the world that you and I see is not just the material world, right? Any more than you are just your material body, right? If you believe that there's anything that's not material that pertains to you or the people that you love, right, you believe in a spiritual world. The question is, do you believe the spiritual world that Jesus describes, or are you just sort of hodgepodging it and creating your own spiritual world? You know, Jesus seems to say that here we have an evidence that we are in this real spiritual warfare every day, which includes you and your family and our church and all of God's people. And so he needs to deliver us from that. Now, of course, you know, you may be wondering, if you look down at Matthew chapter 6, where is that section for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever? Uh, well, I won't spend too much time on this, but all of the earliest manuscripts and copies of the New Testament act don't actually include those words. And instead, you know, where they end is right here. So where do we get those words? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Well, uh, actually, uh, what early Christians did, which is totally valid, was they added to the Lord's Prayer. They pulled it right there from 1 Chronicles chapter 29. And it says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Now, the reason I point that out is because I want to remind you that for the long Christian tradition, this is not the only thing that you pray as you pray the Lord's Prayer. Remember, I would suggest to you that this is an outline. So if you say, our Father you may need to pause and say, God, I don't really believe you're my father. Help me to grow into that. Um, hallowed be your name. God, I don't really revere you like I should. Help me to revere you. Um, give us this day our daily bread. Hmm, I wonder if I should give to the Salvation Army this year so that people have food. Use it as an outline. Uh, you know, the earliest Christians said you prayed it three times a day. You know, morning, noon, and night. So think of the Lord's Prayer. Yes, you can pray through it, but you're pausing and you're thinking about each one of these things. That's what Christians would have done. And then, you know, the early Christian church was like, well, you know what would be a really beautiful ending to this prayer would be First Chronicles. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It's true theology and we should pray it. And that's why we pray it every Sunday because it's scripture and it's true. But notice, you know, the, the odd thing, and I'll finish on this, is within this passage, Jesus sort of throws us a curveball, it may seem. Because he ends with this really sort of dire warning about forgiveness. But friends, we have to remember that at the heart of why Jesus came into our world, the heart of the gospel is so that we sinful people might be forgiven and reconciled to a holy and loving father. I mean, that's why Jesus came. It wasn't just to teach us how to pray. He came also to die the death that our sin deserved. 
and to come back from the dead on the third day to prove to you definitively that he is Lord of all and he will one day return to make all things new. And we know that renewal is happening because it happened first in Jesus's body. Jesus is committed to a material world. And if you believe that gospel message, you know, as the old adage goes, forgiven people do what? Forgiven, or let me think about it this way. Broken people do what? They break people. Hurt people do what? Hurt people hurt people. You ever heard somebody say that? But forgiven people do what? They forgive people. I mean, this is the great test, isn't it? If we can pray the Lord's Prayer and we understand we have access to the Father because of Christ, and He is our Father and He loves us, He's not mad at us. His anger was meted out on Christ. The test is, am I forgiving those around me? Father, forgive us our debts. Even the person that wronged me, forgive us our debts as we have already forgiven them. It's the great test of the gospel in our lives, isn't it? Uh, Friends, so... All that to say, you know, is, is you maybe are making your way back to God, you know, um, and if you're thinking, is there some other way that doesn't require me to sort of take off the mask and engage him in prayer? Friends, I lovingly tell you, <laughs> there is no other way. <laughs> there is no other way to connect with God outside of prayer. Uh, you can do more. You can add to it. You can read scripture. You can talk to people about Christ, but this is one of the most beautiful paths And uh, friends, I would encourage you to join us in the Lord's Prayer. Um, Shameless plug, if you join us in our daily devotional uh, this week in the Ephraim Co-op, it's on our app. There's print copies on that back table right here. Fun fact, I am now a print copy person because I can't use my phone to look at it. But if you do the Ephraim Co-op this week, every morning, uh, you'll read some chapters in Luke, an Old Testament chapter. And then the daily prayers, guess what? Yeah, the Magnificat, yeah. No, I'm just kidding. It's the Lord's Prayer, sorry. <laughs> I encourage you to try it, and maybe even do it morning, noon, and night. Uh, friends, that's an invitation. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have already forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.